0: Good evening. Please turn with me to Psalm 16. Just read through the chapter. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows shall be multiplied, who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. O oh Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance in my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord, who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life, In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Our Father, we thank you for this opportunity to open your word. We thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus, and uh, all that we see about him in Scripture. Lord, we look to uh, be... uh, uh, to gain uh, a little more understanding, uh, to be, uh, become better believers, better followers of you, Lord. Uh, please open our hearts, uh, prepare our minds and our hearts, soften our hearts to hear what you have to say and to see some simple observations and perhaps put them into practice in our daily lives so that we could live for you and um, for your glory, Lord. We just commit this time into your hands. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 16 is a Messianic Psalm. <clears throat> It's uh, a mictum of David. There are six of them. Uh, Five of them are grouped together, 56 through 60. And they have a general idea of some sort of um, problem that David is encountering, a a people group or some kind of oppression. And then usually there's a verse in there that gives some kind of strength. Lord, you are my steadfast hope or something like that. So does this one, but this one is different. This one stands alone. So... It's been given the title in the book itself as the Golden Psalm. Spurgeon calls it the Psalm of the Precious Secret. Why? Because it speaks of the Savior and the Savior's resurrection. So it's set apart. Uh, If you want to, I'm sure there's other different ways to break it down. I just divided it into four sections uh, that made sense to me. Uh, The first two verses uh, talk of the Savior's trust in his God. Verses three through four, we have a comparison and a contrast. If you want to say that between the sheeps and the goat, uh, goats, you have the excellent ones compared to those who hasten after other gods. Uh, verses five through six, we have the Savior's inheritance. He speaks of his inheritance and what's to come. And then seven through 11, I kind of put together and it, to me, it just spoke of the rejoicing Savior. We hear him rejoicing over what's to come and his inheritance. So we begin in verse one. Preserve me, O God. For in you, I put my trust. Preserve me. When you consider who's talking here, we know that it's the Savior talking in in Acts two. They refer back to this verse and we don't need to try to interpret it or to figure out what he's saying here. Here in verse twenty five. Uh, we read for David says concerning him who is him Christ I foresaw the Lord always before my face he is at my right hand that I might be shaken and ver- all the way through verse 28 he's quoting directly from Psalm 16 we know he's speaking of Christ this is Christ interesting to see the Savior saying preserve me this is God incarnate why does he ask for help uh, but then he also, in the New Testament, we read that he says, uh, I do not want to take part of this cup. He, he felt this fear as a human in the flesh. He understood what it was to go through fear, to fear for his life. We can relate to him. That, that should give us uh, that much more of a consideration for who he was. We can relate to him because he can relate to us. He understands our fears. So when he says, lay your burdens on me, he's not talking to someone as someone who doesn't understand what we need. Um, for example, I-, I love this portion, uh, the way it's described in Mark. <clears throat> Mark chapter 6. I think it goes along with this. We see Jesus praying on the mountain and the disciples rowing across the sea. It's in the middle of the night. And uh, if, you, if you look there, verse 47 it says, now when the evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on the land. The disciples are in the middle of the sea of Galilee. I think the rough estimate is about two, three miles out. And he's on the mountain and it's dark. What is our Savior doing? He's praying. Verse 46, and he had sent them away, the multitudes, and he departed to the mountain to pray. We'll see over and over again, and we'll, we'll see a little further down uh, in this chapter 16, that the Savior is the perfect example for prayer it's a perfect example for everything but prayer is something he is exemplary at he goes to pray and I just found it uh, striking that in the dark in the third watch of the night one of the other portions gives a specific time it's pitch black he's on the mountain you can't see anything on the sea if you've ever been on the open sea I've been on the open sea in the dark and it is pitch black you can't see anything but he saw them he saw them in the storm, and they're struggling. So, we can take a lesson from there. We can see the turmoil this world is in. You want to call it the storms of life, or whatever it is. Maybe we're each going through some kind of struggle, whatever that is. Know that even in the darkest times, the Lord sees us. Then you see the interchange between uh, him and Peter later. Uh, where he's stepping out, going to God, but then he falls. Even in the dark, when we're even as a believer, we could be uh, stepping through this world and in this crazy storm. We don't—I don't know what everyone's experiences are. We all have different issues and problems. But even in those trying times, we may stumble and fall. Peter sunk. Who are you reaching out to? Who is our trust? So the Lord here says, "Preserve me, O God." Chapter 16. Come back to Psalms. He says, preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. So again, an example for us. And then he goes on. "O oh, my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. It's interesting that he says, oh, my soul. A lot of us, I know I have growing up, I've done it so many times. It's easy to speak with my mouth. What does my heart say? The Lord himself is saying, my soul you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. From his very core, he accepts his Lord and his God. Is that the same for me? Is that the same for you? How does he have that faith? Or how can we have that faith? When we look at him saying, preserve me, it may just seem to the unbeliever, oh, here he is, just a man asking for help, calling out for help. But in time immemorial in, in the Godhead, in the Trinity, the, the whole plan of salvation, all of time in history was understood and known, what would be. And we read in Isaiah 49, listen to these words, Isaiah 49, 7, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises. To him whom the nation abhors, to the servant of the rulers, kings shall see and rise and arise. Princes also shall worship because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. Thus says the Lord in an acceptable time, I have heard you. That's key. I, the Lord, have heard you, my Holy One. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth. He knew before anything was created, in the infinite mind of God that sees no time boundary, this was our plan. The Lord would preserve me. He had the promise from the Lord himself, as a son, I will be preserved. Yet he says, preserve me, O Lord. Interesting. But it just shows his commitment to obey the Lord and to observe not the difference, but the different position or title of father and son, God and Lord. And he obeyed perfect obedience. It's an example to us. Perfect obedience and to trust in who? Not just with words, but with our hearts, with our hearts, our very hearts. So what does my heart say? Is it just a confession of my mouth or is it, is it me? Who is my sovereign? Is it the Lord? I had to ask myself that. Maybe you're asking, maybe you have asked yourself the same thing. And it's a good point to reflect on. And we move down to verse 3 and 4, and we have this comparison and contrast. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. That word saints is only used in uh, Second Chronicles, Psalms, and Daniel. It's always in the context of someone who loves and serves the Lord, always. Uh, As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Actually, going back to verse 2, it says, My goodness is nothing apart from you. That, To me, it wasn't as clear. My goodness is nothing apart from you. I understand that uh, the, the Trinity is one, but they're not three different parts or modes. We don't want to use modalism to give it a term where God turns into the Son and then comes back into God and turns into the Holy Spirit. He's one and the same all the time. He had three different persons what does that mean? My goodness is nothing apart from you. I, I found the the King James to be a little clearer, and it reads like this: "O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, Thou art my Lord. My goodness extendeth not to thee, but to the saints that are in the earth, and to the excellent in whom is all my delight. What extends to God from the sun? What doesn't extend to God from the sun? That does extend." to the saints I would submit that's only the goodness of his salvation it has to be so he extends salvation to us that is the goodness that's spoken of here Christ's soul acknowledges the Lord as sovereign and he doesn't need to save God he saved man so looking at that the saints are all those who serve and love the Lord they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight That has to strike you when you read that. He delights in those who love and serve him. I had to ask myself, does he delight in me? How do I view myself in the light of scripture? Do I view myself in the light of scripture? There has to be this process of review and verifying. This is key. Because the Lord delights in them, in those who, who he loves, and those who love him and serve him. And that should be important to us, and we read on to see what happens to those who don 't or how they are considered their sorrows shall be multiplied in verse four, who hasten after another God, their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take their names upon my lip, nor take up their names on my lips. I, I was trying to look at this as an unbeliever I, I wanted to mainly for the purpose of having the conversation with other people. Uh, I mean, it happens every day. run into a co or something. And you're like, I don't believe in the Bible. Sure, okay. Well, I'm looking at it from, I wanted to see it from their point of view. And the question popped into my head. If this is a picture of the Savior in Psalm 16, that doesn't sound like a very nice person. I'm not going to take their names up on my lips. What happened to the Christ on the cross who, as they crucified him, cried out to the Lord saying, forgive them. Contrast, right? Almost seems like a discrepancy. That's what I want to address. Men are quick to point out the discrepancies, quote unquote, in, in scripture. Is it a discrepancy? Well, let's look again. Their sorrow shall be multiplied for who? Those who hasten after another God. I would submit that this could be, it applies to any unbeliever, definitely. But, in the context who hasten after another God, who was their original God. It could be talking about someone who was coming to the Lord, with the Lord, possibly, but they're now running away. That's the key point. They are not just turning. They're not just looking. They are running. They're purposing to go after someone else. One. Two, their drink offerings of blood I will not offer. Imagine a priest accepting an offering Heave offering, wave offering, drink offering. There's so many offerings. And having this cup of blood, I mean, that's not what the Lord prescribes. You're not supposed to eat blood. Everyone knows that multiple times. Genesis, Leviticus, uh, multiple times in Leviticus. You don't eat blood. You definitely don't drink it. But the main thing is, it's not what the Lord commanded. We can learn that lesson from Nadab and Abihu. They were consecrated priests, sons of Aaron, of the right tribe. They even brought the right thing. It was fire, but it was profane fire. Why? Because they weren't right in their minds. It was the, the passage implies they were drunk. So it's not what you bring, it's how you bring. It's not only how you bring, it's your heart. So these people that are kind of, potentially, if you look at it from someone who is, has an inkling or an idea of who God is, they're hastening for another God, but yet they're still bringing this profane offering. That doesn't sound right. And we read... I I, I, misplaced, I can't remember off the top of my head. I'm terrible with uh, quoting verses, but we know there's the verse that says, there will be many in that day that call my name, but I don't know them. I'll say, depart. I never knew you. And it implies someone who had an idea of who the Lord is or who God is because they say, Lord, Lord. That was uh, the way it was interpreted once I heard. Uh, the two mentions of Lord implies a closer relationship. So the warning is, one, don't turn away from God. Two, don't come with some kind of weird offering. That's not what the Lord commanded. He killed Nadab and Abihu for that. They died. It's a serious thing to disobey the command of the Lord. But it, again, coming back to the, the initial thought, it sounds like someone who is not showing mercy. The, the Jesus on the cross says, forgive them. They're crucifying me. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Here it says he won't take their names on their lips. And we, we went through that. But ultimately, the Lord's plan has been and always will be mercy to man. Pharaoh, when Moses went to him, In the portion right before, it says, Tell Pharaoh to tell, I mean, yes, God's tongue Moses, tell Pharaoh that I said, Let my son Israel go, or I will kill your son. Did you ever see that? The first time I read that, I'd never seen that before. Like, wow, God said he was going to kill Pharaoh's son. Never saw that. That sounds kind of harsh. It sounds dreadful, actually. Why would you want to kill his firstborn son? Pharaoh had killed thousands of babies already. He could have just crushed him like that. And he put his people in slavery. If anyone deserved death, it was Pharaoh right then and there. But that's not what we see. We don't see an instant punishment. He sends a messenger to tell him, let my people go. Or, bear the punishment. And we don't hear those words again, I will kill your son. It's only mentioned right before we don't see in the passage Moses saying it to Pharaoh. It's only implied that he did. And then we see these ten plagues. I looked it up really quick. I didn't get to fully verify each name, but each plague is associated with a god of ancient Egypt. So he, every plague, showed and proved that God was the true God and that Pharaoh, who is the physical embodiment of the spiritual sun god, the god of life, Ra, the God of the sun, life, and I think the Nile as well. God after God topples like bowling pins. And we get to their God of gods, and he can't bring his son back to life. His power is ruined, it's crushed. It's proven now that this is the true God. That is not a story of a harsh, judgmental Old Testament God, which I've heard a few times now in the last few weeks. That's a story of mercy. Ten chances, really? We don't give chances to anybody today. You cut me off, I hunk. Oh, you took more taxes out of me? I'm not going to pay you taxes next year. You'll find some way. Somehow, it it seems to be in our nature. It's our corrupt nature. We want to get back at people. It comes out in our conversations, in our relationships, our friendships. We want to hurt people. This is not that same story. An infinite God showing mercy. True mercy. Another great example, I, I, I really like this one because it could slip by. The Ten Commandments bring death. No man can keep them. It just proves that you're a sinner and that you're deserving of death. It proves it. Moses took the Ten Commandments and he put them into the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant had a lid and that was placed into the tabernacle and the glory of God would rest on top of that lid. That lid had a name. Does anyone know what the name is? Anybody younger than 20? The lid of the Ark? The mercy seat. I had never seen this either. But when I first noticed this, it just literally blew my mind. And there's not much mind to blow. So I mean think about that. The law is in this box and above the law where the, the presence of God <clears throat> excuse me, the presence of God sits is called the mercy seat. The, the law that brings death to man is placed positionally below mercy. It's a picture, again, showing that God his his original and and intention for all of eternity has been to show mercy to man so it's not it can be misread as um, potentially uh, a vengeful uh, spiteful God but uh, I think we can clearly see that God's intention is mercy in verse 5 and 6 we uh, if you want to keep going the following the breakdown this would be the portion describing the Savior's inheritance Oh, Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance, my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. My cup. When you look up cup throughout the Old Testament, the vast majority of its uses are not pleasant. It's usually the cup of wrath, the cup of fury, uh, the cup of this destruction or something like that. It's only in a few places where it's a positive thing. My cup runneth over to blessing. And here he speaks of the cup and inheritance. You are my portion. My allotment is literally what the word portion means. Of my inheritance, my allotment is you, Lord. And he says it's blessed. And you maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. I have a good inheritance. You know, as the firstborn son of God, he gets the lion's share of any portion of inheritance according to Jewish rule. But think about his life and what he did to get it. He is qualified by heaven he came down as the son of God in flesh. But they didn't accept him. He was vilified by his brethren, crucified without cause, but glorified by God Hebrews twelve two says looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God I would submit that it's the joy of seeing the gospel come to fruition all who would be saved Christ reunited with his bride man back in communion with God this is the joy that was set before him so that he would endure the cross. Verse. I gave my, as Isaiah 56 through 7, I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me, and therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame he suffered like no one suffered and he did it for you and me and he considers <coughs> excuse me he considers his inheritance good i had to ask myself the same regardless of whatever suffering consequence issues in my life situations going on can i say the same knowing what is in store for me in eternity knowing who my savior is everything that he has provided for me here spiritually physically and what awaits for me in eternity am I content can I say that I have a good inheritance it's definitely something to consider I think the vast majority of people take that very flippantly we tend to put it aside we wake up every day and we live our lives like nothing's nothing's different when we have eternity in store for us (coughs) We should appreciate that. In verse 7. I'll bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. Jesus spent many sleepless nights in prayer. And he was up early too. Mark. Now in the morning, having having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place. And there he prayed. Luke 5.16. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. There's other portions where it says that he went to pray. But I thought these two used words that specifically described who Jesus is in regards to prayer. He rose early, long before daylight. He often withdrew into the wilderness alone. No one saw him. He just wanted to be alone with his father. So so you have to ask yourself, what's my prayer life like? If I don't speak with God, how can I know what he wants me to know? It says here, I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. If we don't speak with the Lord, if we don't read his word, how do you get counsel? What, What source are you going to for understanding wisdom for the things that we deal with on a day-to-day basis? Family, crisis. We saw what's going on in France, Turkey. It's it's never going to stop. It's on its way down, on its way out. How do you deal with that? We were talking a little bit last night about trauma and dealing with seeing things. There's only so much your mind can take. How does the world deal with it at least we have the assurance knowing there will be justice. What do they have? They're looking for an answer. At least we have the option and privilege to pray. If I don't speak with God, how can I know what he wants me to know? Let alone ask him for help. What's my prayer life like? <clears throat> I have always set the Lord before me, in verse 8. I have always set the Lord before me because He is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. That's the ideal, isn't it? I have always set the Lord before me. I don't think there's anyone who can say that except Christ. Um, the example is to be like that, and we fail often. Excuse me. Therefore, verse 9 My heart is glad. And my glory rejoices. My flesh also excuse, will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in shield, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. That threw me for a loop. How does your glory rejoice? How does one's glory rejoice? Well, the idea here is literally spinning up with emotion. You know, someone gets like giddy. That's the idea. We're not saying that the Savior is giddy with emotion, but literally his glory is like extra sparkly almost is the, the connotation of he's just altogether just happy. He's like, yeah, I know that I'm not going to be left to be shamed. I know I'm not going to be corrupt. And it's just extra bling, <laughs> if you want to put it that way. Uh, my heart is glad from his core just like he says my soul says you are my God from his very core he is glad and he rejoices that's how he can rest secure again from infinity of time beyond in in the, the vastness of the mind of God which we can one day maybe get to understand he knew they knew together that his body would not be corrupted and that he would redeem man back to God. I like that verse. Isaiah 49 says, Thus says the Lord in an acceptable time, I have heard you. And again, this comes back to prayer. And the, and the illustration of Peter in the water. We go through trouble. We go through issues. That's normal. And sometimes some more extant than others. Uh, but the Lord is telling. The Lord is telling Christ, I have heard you when he prayed. It's a reminder to us. To build that relationship in prayer. <clears throat> to spend time here reading again how do we know how do we know anything if we're not here if we're not reading the children sing it all the time read your Bible pray every day and you'll grow 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 as an adult I I, sometimes I I remember looking back uh, Jaina growing up here I wouldn't even be singing the song I'm like yeah yeah I know it's a kid's song I, I got that part It's not something we just throw aside like that. We cannot be flippant. It's all important. If we don't build that relationship, how do we know? How do we grow? And then we have the privilege to open up God's word and to see who our Savior is. It's one thing to hear, but it's another thing like David to say, to understand what it is, to taste and see that the Lord is good. To know personally how he teaches you his lessons. That uh, Pharaoh's son died and was in a tomb. No one brought him back. Pharaoh couldn't bring him back. The Son of God is not in a tomb, he's risen. We have hope. Our Holy One did not see corruption. And in the end, and verse 11 says, you will show me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I remember singing the song, I will sing, I will sing of the mercy of the Lord forever. I will sing. And that's a song we sang all the time in my church growing up um, as a little kid. I don't think it's ever really hit me till I was older. There will be a time coming. That's what we're looking forward to, right? when that will be true. We're looking forward to the day when we can be in his presence, where there's fullness of joy, as it says in verse 11, and we will sing of his mercies forever. We discussed that a little bit on on Wednesday night. We'll be able to talk on and on of the mercy that he's shown us, how important that is. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 17, just to close. At the end of verse 15, I thought was a very fitting line that David wrote. I shall be satisfied when I awaken your likeness. Is that your hope? Is that my hope? Regardless of all that's going on in the world, that one day we'll awaken his likeness And true joy and pleasures forevermore will begin with Him. Is that our hope? I hope so. I know for myself, uh, I look forward to it. I have children that I want to raise uh, that would also come to know that hope. And it would be a sad thing that if you were sitting here today and you didn't know the Lord, to walk away, not fully understand that, maybe dismiss it, and then... The Lord returns and now you're in eternity, perhaps if you had passed away or when the Lord returns, if you had passed away and you're in eternity without him, you're lost forever. There is no choice. Today is the day. It's something to consider pictures of the Savior in the Old Testament before he lived in perfect harmony with the record of who he was in the New Testament. I hope that has been encouragement to you, and we'll close in prayer. Oh, Father, we thank you for this, uh, again, the opportunity to look into your word. We thank you for your spirit which guides us. Just pray that uh, you would uh, use these words from your scripture to encourage us to live for you, uh, to <clears throat> understand truly who you are, to have answers uh, for the hope that's within us when the world asks. And they do ask, and they ask hard questions that... We can't always answer with our knowledge, but we know that you will give us through your spirit the words to say, uh, help us to be encouraging and not uh, condescending. Help us to be um, uplifting and uh, different from a world that's almost settling in its misery, um, accepting that there is no hope when there is. And we thank you that we have that hope in us and we thank you that your son came to die for us, Lord. Uh, We just commit this time into your hands. We pray for everyone here and those who couldn't make it. Lord, we just uh, commit all of us into your hands. We pray that uh, in your will that we'd be able to return and meet together to remember you in the following week. Uh, I pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, your son. Amen.